From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish current affairs and politics program. Welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, as usual, on the on the show and on the podcast. If you're listening live to us on 101.9 Chai FM or chaifm.com, it's good to be with you. Or if you're listening to us on the Jerusalem Post as well. Uh, we like to have listeners from all sorts of places, so... Welcome to the show, and boy, am I excited and honored to have our guest today. Uh, she's flown a long way to be with us, and to have her in studio is a real, real honor. She is Chloe Valdari. She is an all-round activist, thought leader, vinist, memist, uh, who knows, uh, I, I'm running out of uh, bad technical jargon, but she's cool. She's very cool. Definitely the coolest guest that I've ever had. Uh, no no disrespect to any of the, the previous ones. And uh, we're going to be talking for the next uh, 45 minutes about Israel, about America, about student life, about everything that's cool and interesting and political around Israel. Chloe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're a fan of Rihanna. Beyonce, all of the above, all of them. She she put this in her in her in her like thing to me her her bio to say you have to mention this. So there we go. Uh, <laughs> Chloe, welcome to the show. Uh, people you. who are not really familiar with you, I wouldn't know why that would be the case. But yeah. uh, what is it that you do? Um, so so I'm director of partnerships and outreach at a great organization called Jerusalem U. Uh, it's an educational organization and film production company based in Jerusalem. Half of the staff works in America. Uh, my job is to create digital shorts for social media on Facebook, Instagram, you know, Snapchat, etc. I also speak in different community events uh, around the country and, as of today, around the world uh, about Israel and millennial engagement, what works, what doesn't, and how to make it better. I'm going to talk a lot about that because millennials uh, need engaging. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the rule. Apparently, I'm a millennial. I'm not sure mm. if that's really probably on the cusp. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, I agree. Like when someone <laughs> said to me, "You're a millennial," I'm like, "No, dude, that, there's a problem there." <laughs> First of all, I want to start off with uh, you sent a sort of video. You're in South Africa for a trip, as you say. You're now a world figure as yes. opposed to just being a, a hero in America and Israel. And you said you really wanted to come here. Because it was kind of fulfilling two parts of your identity, right? right. There's the African-American element, there's right. the Israeli element. What is it like coming to the motherland on a mission for the motherland? Oh, it's a great question. I love that double entendre that you did there. Um, no, it's, it's, it's incredible because I think that what I expected to feel and anticipated feeling actually happened. You know, yesterday uh, we went to go see the lions and I thought it was curious that the lions are the pride of Africa and simultaneously the pride of Judah. And so there's this, there's this pattern going on. Um, it's been a really incredible trip, a slightly overwhelming kind of a whirlwind tour, so to speak, but really incredible. Um, and it is speaking to both aspects of my identity, especially when it comes to you know me being a black American Coming to Africa for the first time is super meaningful and super impactful. Um, but also, I'm very much a musical person, um, as you mentioned, Rihanna and Beyonce earlier. And and instinctively, it's very strange, I think, but perhaps it makes sense. 
instinctively, every time I hear incredible South African music, I get it. Like I can speak that language and I can immediately communicate on that level. So I was at a school in Soweto two days ago, and there were uh, these young these young female students who taught me a dance. And and although I didn't get the the exact you know dance moves correctly, I was still in sync and I was still in tune. So I think that that. Uh, episode really speaks to how I I I'm just on the same wavelength I think and being here is even though it's a foreign country it's another country being here feels familiar it doesn't exactly feel all too foreign so I think you know I'm having a really good time experiencing that that's amazing you're probably well ahead of any dance moves that I've ever done so <laughs> that's great now let's talk about the other side of your identity for yes. a second right yes. uh, I know you got this question everywhere you go everywhere <laughs> how, how how did you get into this uh, what is a nice new New Orleans girl doing in a in a job like this yes great question. Question. Trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> no, I so I was born and raised in a very unique Christian family, steeped in Jewish culture. Grew up observing Shabbat, keeping kosher style, and keeping the holy days like Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah as a Christian. Uh, my father used to be a Baptist, and then he changed denominations because he wanted to observe Christianity and the way the original Christians observed, and they were all Jewish. Um, so as a result, my religious slash spiritual identity has been shaped and constructed by Jewish life, by Jewish culture. Uh, so that's why I think it was actually rather natural and organic that I should eventually be involved in Israel-related activities. Now, in South Africa, that's not really an unusual thing for us. I think mm-hmm. particularly in the last decade, uh, South African Jews have become more used to the idea of, I don't know how it would describe, call it Hebraic Christians, mm-hmm. if that's maybe a, an appropriate term. Uh, is it something that's a big movement in the States? I mean, we know about evangelicals mm-hmm. and their connection to Israel, but this this idea of Christians taking on the 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 Old Testament is it mm-hmm. is it is it a big movement in America? It's not. I mean, you have you have denominations like the Seventh Day Adventists, which also keeps Shabbat on some level. Um, but the community I grew up in is small, was small, remains small. Um, so it's not as probably widespread as it is here in South Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Let's talk also, you've kind of spoken quite a lot here in South Africa about the idea of Jewish and African-American experiences converging, Mm -hmm. uh, ideas around black liberation and Zionism. Not necessarily two discourses which I think people necessarily think of today, but I think Mm -hmm. you've been making a lot of points about how you think we we need to recapture that a little Mm -hmm. bit. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. So from the perspective, uh, I'll give you two perspectives, the perspective as a black American and also what I've learned being here in South Africa. So, you know, the history of liberation movements in America with particular um, focus on the civil rights movement and the songs of the civil rights movement, I think highlights the convergence of Jewish and black American identity. Many of the songs that were sung throughout the civil rights movement and even beyond uh, were colored with the with the language of Jewish stories. So, for for example, Harriet Tubman, who is a famous abolitionist, was referred to as Moses. Um, we would sing Go Down Moses as a liberation song during the civil rights movement. We would sing other songs referencing Jordan and, you know, Wade in the Water is a famous sort of black spiritual song. A lot of people don't realize that it's a reference to when, you know, the story of God parting the Red Sea and the Israelites going through. So there's a lot of sort of crossover in terms of the 
the black community taking the language or, or drawing really inspiration from the language of the Jewish people's story and being uh, inspired and empowered by that. So that's like a very brief history. And then from the South African perspective, what I've learned since being here is that for black South Africans, especially the, this question of land is a very uh, important element of black South African identity. And um, curiously enough, it, that also happens to be the case for Jewish identity uh, with regard to the land of Israel. And even more so, you know, apartheid, the history of apartheid in this country, I, I, it dawned on me recently um, that black South Africans here in South Africa and Ashkenazi Jews actually experienced similar um, systems of oppression coming from the same European sources. And Steve Biko's response to that was black consciousness, and Theodore Herzl's response uh, in Europe was Zionism. Of course, Zionism didn't start with Theodore Herzl. It really represented um, the culmination of thousands of years of yearning on the part of the Jewish people to return. But this concept of land and how it comes to shape someone's or some people's identity is shared in the black South African experience and in the Jewish experience. It is interesting. We're hearing more and more in the Jewish world about the idea of the indigenization argument, right? The Mm -hmm. Jews as the people who kind of belong to the land, Mm -hmm. not necessarily excluding anyone else, but like having that identity. And and I get the sense a lot about the anti-Israel discourse that there's a big attempt Mm -hmm. to try and and divorce the Jewish connection to the land as much as possible, the idea that they're colonizers or or whatever. And I think it's actually a crucial battle conceptually going forward Mm -hmm. about how are Jews connected to Israel in a way that is authentic and realistic. Right. That's a very good point. I mean, we see this constant type of language being used by anti-Israel people uh, referring to Israel as a quote-unquote a settler colonial you know, entity in the Middle East, which is sort of ironic. Um, and I was having conversations with some people last night about this in the sense that if, you, if one maintains that Israelis are not indigenous to, to Israel, if one maintains that Jews are not indigenous to, to Israel, then one can undermine all other indigenous movements. If one makes the argument that by virtue of constantly conquering and establishing empires in a particular region that the native people no longer are native then if we if we draw this out to its logical conclusion then indigenous peoples everywhere no longer are native to their to their lands and i don't think that 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 resonates or is a, is something that would be agreed upon by most people who consider themselves uh, progressive or consider themselves um, believers in social justice. So for if, if Jews are not native to, to Israel, then Native Americans aren't native, then black South Africans aren't native, and it undermines every other indigenous uh, group. So I think that people who are interested in this conversation about indigeneity um, – would do well to be consistent and would do well to make sure that groups aren't coming in and trying to exploit um, their their own movements for political expediency. I get the sense that within the, the African-American mm-hmm. discourse around liberation that there seems to be some like a competing narrative, almost the same way that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King had an argument in the 60s, that there's almost this sense of the the original African American liberation, the W. E. Du Bois mm-hmm. and uh, the, the Marcus Garveys of the world, right. who did have this this connection to the Jews, and a, a much more latter kind of let's call the Farrakhans, the yeah. France Fanons, and then there's 
there, there's an argument going yes. on in, in the African-American world. Yes. And I would say the African diaspora in general mm-hmm. about what is the correct way to respond to issues of oppression mm-hmm. and, and liberation. And in this country, particularly yeah, economic transformation, that sort of thing. And, and, the, and the Jewish question is kind of getting tossed between right. them. That that conversation and that tension has has happened for a long time. Uh, that disagreement has existed for a long time, uh, pre nineteen forty eight, and will continue to exist. And certainly, it will manifest itself into the Israel question as a result. Um, so yes, you have, like you said, the Marcus Garveys and the W. E. B. Du Bois and the Booker T. Washingtons and the Dr. Kings of the world, and even the Rosa Parks of the world, who are historically Zionists. And then you have that tension uh, between them and the and the Malcolm X pre-Mecca's of the world, because I want to point out that Malcolm X post-Mecca actually made a statement that said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, he said that, you know, just as Zionism, what Zionism did for the Jewish people, Pan-Africanism will, will also accomplish for the black people who actually look to Zionism as a guide um, to, to learn from. Um, but yes, this tension has existed. I welcome the debate within my community. Um, I do think that There is an unfortunately dangerous trend, however, that is prominent in the theologies and the philosophies of the Farrakhans of the world, which is this dehumanization of the other. Um, You know, Farrakhan is notoriously racist, Um, notoriously racist against Jews, um, notoriously racist against white people, and it's it, it should also be mentioned that as a reminder that Farrakhan was involved in Malcolm X's death. Uh, post mecca so so this thread of animosity that is articulated in such a way that deems anyone who is not black as other or as um, evil by virtue of him or her not being black is something that unfortunately animates the the conversation around Israel and the more and more this is a theme, the more unsustainable, the more destructive and and the more animosity that will be involved. And what's interesting for me is sort of the latest incarnation, if, if you like, has kind of been sucked up into this postmodernist mm-hmm. view of the world, mm-hmm. uh, sort of soft left, right. as well as the, I don't know, what would be the, uh, the sort of forms of feminism, the, these kind of theologies that we find on campuses, yes. the liberal campuses, and it's kind of got sucked into a sort of militant African nationalism mm-hmm. together with these sorts of ideologies. And I feel like that's the type of thinking that's animating some of the new activist movements that we're seeing, particularly in the African-American community. Well, I don't know if – I haven't really seen a militant African nationalism in America in the black community. I have seen you know, the, the rise in prominence of Black Lives Matter, which isn't, which isn't really African nationalist in, right. in its disposition, but it certainly is um, – it certainly has this sort of like soft left – uh, bent about it, um, but without the seriousness that actually characterize a lot of intellectuals on the left. Meaning, if you read their platform that that they came out with last year, uh, on a whole host of issues ranging from criminal justice reform to education to um, healthcare, there was a lot of incoherence and there was a lot of contradiction. And for lack of a better way of putting it, I don't think. Black Lives Matter or the the people who represented that organization did their homework. And so in addition to that, there were also statements about Israel. Um, So I agree with you that there is this postmodernist sort of like 
zeitgeist sweeping over uh, at least you know the country of America. But there's so many there's so many contradictions and there's so much inconsistency. I mean, the women's march, for example, the second women's march, um, had as one of its guests someone who actually committed terrorism in Israel, a Palestinian woman by the name of, of Razmi Ode, um, who who literally bombed a, a Jewish supermarket in Israel. Um, and and this is the person who is supposed to be the spokeswoman for for women's and 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 things of that nature. So there's a lot of contradiction. I don't know if it'll be sustainable. I would like to see a healthy debate between people on the right and on the left, but these both groups must be engaged intellectually and seriously in inconsistent in ideas. You're listening to 101.9 HiFM HiFM dot com. This is the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman, and we are talking today to Chloe Voldari. She's from Jerusalem U, and we're discussing all things Israel, all things African-American, and all things in between, which only gives us about 45 minutes to cover that. But it's absolutely fascinating, and we'll be back right after this. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Chloe, I want to not harp on this aspect too much longer, but I want to get a sense from you about African-American students okay. in the States. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to African-American students, okay. and unlike, say, South African students who are, are quite militant and mm-hmm. shouty and sometimes burning things and whatever, mm-hmm. I get the sense that even, this was even before Trump, that there is a sense of fear and and unease mm-hmm. amongst African-American students, even on on campuses around the States. And I wonder if you'd be prepared to comment about where you think African-American young people are, because I feel like the the psychology of it can also affect the politics. Yes, that's a great point. I think, I don't know if I can speak to the entirety of the community. I think it depends on where you are and and who you're who you're talking to. I think it depends, for example, whether you're at an HBCU versus a non-HBCU, a historically black college or university. Um, it also depends on the socioeconomic status of who you're talking to. Um, listen, I think that ever since Ferguson in 2014, um, there's been a great deal of of concern in general in the black community um, over issues of police brutality, over issues of of uh, criminal justice reform in the country. With that being said, um, th- that might be affecting the the psychology of students on campus, but the number one issue in black America today is actually education um, and education reform. And, and there's been a great debate and still ongoing, especially now um, in 2017 uh, in, in the country and with regard to the administration over this issue. I do think that the more you have a situation where um, Black Lives Matter, groups like Black Lives Matter, are raising awareness about police brutality uh, and anti-Israel proponents are actually coming in and protesting with Black Lives Matter about these issues and thereby creating a partnership that is expedient in the long run, you will have a situation where it appears that these people care about, you know, other issues that are of serious concern to black America, and that opens the door, unfortunately, for exploitation. Um, but when it comes to the general pulse of black America, there are lots of things going on. There's so much to cover with regard to that issue. And Black Lives Matter, I think, doesn't represent really no. the, the organized black American community. No. I mean, Black Lives Matter 
there's a difference between formal Black Lives Matter and the statement Black Lives Matter, right? <laughs> I think I think any and all Black Americans would stand in solidarity with that slogan. But I would actually guess that most Black Americans have not read the official platform of Black Lives Matter um, and are not engaged with what Black Lives Matter is formally talking about. Um, and there's a world of difference, for example, between Black Lives Matter official position on education and Black America's official position, majority on education. So I'll give you an example. In their platform, they claimed that they were basically against school choice. They were against the privatization of all schools. But if you poll black Americans um, consistently for the past few years, this is our number one issue. We want school choice because we want to have the ability to educate our, our, our children um, with the highest quality possible education. So there's actually... A disparity between a lot of the ideas that Black Lives Matter formally puts out and what Black America actually believes. But because of great marketing, and because again, all Black Americans, I'd say, agree with the the concept that Black Lives Matter, this uh, nuance is lost in the conversation. I think it brings an interesting perspective what you're saying about anti-Israel groups sort of moving into these territories. Again, speaking to African-American students, they said, you know, the reason we even know about this topic is because during Ferguson, it happened right. to be during Gaza, and we were being tweeted that uh, tear gas is being used on us and there's yeah. some sort of gas being used on Gaza, right? It wasn't true, but mm -hmm. it was incredible for me how these people had hooked into a whole uh, set of ideas through basically a set of tweets. Right. And it kind of undermines what I think is perhaps the traditional American jury approach, which is quiet, behind-the-scenes right. community activist building is being undone by this incredible social media fracas that we have out there. Although, you know, I'm not sure if I agree with that conclusion, which is to say that, you know, I had a conversation with the president of ADL about this during Black Lives Matter's uh, whole controversy about their Israel statement. Um, and, and he was like, you know, everyone's talking about it on Twitter and, you know, what do we do? And I was like, listen... The media is as fickle as <laughs> as the day is long, okay? So this will be out of the media in a few days, weeks, months, etc. This too shall pass. And I don't think that they will be successful in undermining that long-term bridge building that's going on behind the scenes. Um, they will be successful, and they have been successful, at creating a marketing image that portrays them as these great social justice warriors um, in sync with issues of the day. But I don't think that will, again, undermine that long-term uh, cooperation that's happening behind the scenes. And I will even say... That I, I know of situations where you have had members of the Jewish community um, introduce, for example, you know, the former Miss Israel who's Ethiopian to members of the Black Lives Matter community. Um, and we just did a film uh, called Maconan, Journey of an African Jew. It's our latest documentary, and we toured around the, the states with it, a seven-city tour. And we brought an Israeli hip-hop band, Café Shachor Kazak, uh, with us, and what we discovered was that this was actually a great uh, bridge building exercise because you had not only non -Jew Jewish students show up, but also non Jewish African student unions showing up, African American student unions showing up, and that was because it it really invited them to to Israeli diversity and to a aspect of Israel they had never seen before. Um, you know, the awareness of of Black Jews and certainly African Jews, I don't think, is very well known in many parts of the community. So um, I think the more we do um, events like these and the more we have exercises and projects around this, we can, we can sort of work our way around what's going on in the media. 
And as you, as you say, I don't think it's sustainable because my sense is, is that anti-Israel groups are not that interested in African-American issues. Certainly, and we'll get onto the apartheid analogy a bit mm-hmm. in a bit, but you, if you speak to sort of B, former BD activists, BDS activists here, yeah. they'll tell you that that they were told to show up for anti-Israel events. But when it came to their issues, Mm -hmm. those people were not interested. Yes, and I would even go so far as to say the BDS people aren't even interested in Palestinian issues. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, from a a seriously sincere perspective, um, I I would argue that BDS harms Palestinians in the long run economically and financially. Um, So it's of no surprise to me that BDS movement would try to use and exploit other other minority groups, uh, you know, um, issues for their own political expediency. Unfortunately, um, there are situations, though, in which these people do show up at other people's protests, for example, in the case of Ferguson, or they do show up um, when it comes to these community meetings. And in addition to this being... Um, problematic because it sort of becomes a loyalty issue like we showed up at your thing you have to show up at our thing it also it just flattens the conversation and turns people into drones like no one's actually debating the substance of any of these issues no one's actually unpacking and discussing the substance of any of these issues it's just like i showed up at your thing now you show up at my thing and it becomes a very superficial game that doesn't really benefit anyone in the long run but my sense is is that as the Jewish community, particularly on campus, mm-hmm. we're not as good at this game as we should be, mm-hmm. right? Yes. My, my sense is that Jewish students are well-resourced. They're often well-organized. They're often very interested. Mm-hmm. But despite this, and I'm talking here on American campuses, um, that they're, they're kind of isolated, that they're yes. not all that involved. And I feel like in the pro-Israel community, we spend a lot of time on the message. You know, yeah. how do we get across about Israel? Uh, what is it? It's diversity. And perhaps we should be spending more time on, on just being there. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, people don't care what you know until they know what you know that you care, right? Yeah. And and my sense is that we haven't gotten that right. Yes, I would agree with that. I would certainly say that's true of the of the American Jewish community, which you know oftentimes likes to parade the iconic photo of Dr. King and 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 Heschel out and say, "You see, this is proof of our partnership." Uh, which has existed for a long time, and I say to them, how is this relevant to the average 21-year-old black American who not, who has not, quite frankly, has not read any of Dr. King's essays and has no idea who Heschel is and is dealing with contemporary issues? Um, how is that relevant? And I think it would do both the Jewish community and the black community well to engage more deeply and intellectually in the history of each other's movements, um, but also... To, to sort of rephrase what you said, just actually become friends with each other. Like, because you can't start to have a conversation about these complex issues. And this is what I said to the students at, at King David High this morning. You can't really ha- introduce someone to com- complexity of issues if they're not your friend. And I think that, that both communities need to, un- to need to learn how to be friends again and need to learn how to interact with each other as human beings, first and foremost. And that could be as basic as like, oh, let's go get a drink or let's, you know, what are you into? Here's what I'm into. Let's find out what actually um, connects us and what we have in common first as human beings. And then let's have those deeper conversations. Yeah, certainly I think that there is uh, uh, very much a need for that. Talking about the idea 
of engagement for for a moment. Uh, your job is uh, Snapchat in chief at uh, Jerusalem U. Uh, it's actually my least favorite. <laughs> Why? Because you only get fifteen seconds. No, it's just sort of like uh, you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not. It's it's okay. I like Snapchat, but I prefer Snapchat more for my 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 intimate set of friends mm-hmm. as opposed to. But we did have a Snapchat filter when we did our when we did our seven city tour in each of the cities, so that was cool. Okay, so. So let's actually talk about that because yeah. someone said to me the other day, you know, Jews have been intimately involved in the creation of mm-hmm. social media, whether it's Facebook, yeah. Google. And they're so bad at being social. So apparently. bad on social media, yeah. right? I mean, and, and I'm, a, irony. I, I'm a, 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 a chief culprit, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, my Twitter rate is, is down. And I, Shimon Perez once said, you know, we're the people of the book. We need to become people of the Facebook yeah. a little bit more. <laughs> Yeah. What is your view about that and how the community is using social media? It's a great question. Um, the Jewish people are super academic. You know, like they, they and you know, props to you for <laughs> for getting great value out of out of being academic. But I think the Jewish, and I'm obviously generalizing, but um, the Jewish community misunderstands that people, first and foremost, human beings, are not at least in our initial you know, interactions with each other, academic, <laughs> you know. And so for a long time, the way we communicated to each other about Israel was like, oh, let me introduce you to Israel. Did you know in 1948, Balfour Declaration, blah, 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 you know, and it's just like, and I'm thinking to myself, if someone wanted to introduce me to the history of, say, Sri Lanka and, and started it off like that, I too would probably not be interested right. or care. <laughs> So, listen, I think the community has gotten better, um, but the community still doesn't understand, and I, and, I, and I stress this point. Israel has to be portrayed in a human way, meaning you have to highlight the, the human face of Israelis um, to show that they're just like you and me. They deal with challenges. They deal with their imperfections. They deal with their shortcomings, but they have aspirations just like you and me. So that has to be shown. Um, but also Israel has to be shown with the coolness that it exudes. Right. And this is another thing that I'm not sure, and again, I'm generalizing, many people in the Jewish community understand (laughs) fundamentally. (laughs) Like, and perhaps this is an age barrier difference, because a lot of the people involved in advocacy are older, and they don't know who Drake is. Right. For example. And that they, was a very subtle dig at me. No, I mean, you I know, didn't know who Drake No, I didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know who Drake was. <laughs> yes, that's true. But I say this because it's super important. If you want to engage a generation, you need to know the lexicon mm-hmm. and the language that generation is engaging in in its everyday activities. You have to know the pulse of the pop culture because that's the only way you're really going to change them or transform them or get them interested in Israel. And that is crucial. And I'm not sure that the American Jewish community as a whole fundamentally understands this. Which is ridiculous because Israel is ridiculously pop culture orientated. There's there's a guy, he's an Israeli Arab, he lives in some town in the north of Galilee Mm -hmm. and he has half a million followers because every day he goes to a different city and has a one minute... Oh, Nas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Nas Daily. I follow him. (laughs) You see? Uh, I wonder how many people listening to this podcast (laughs) follow Nas Daily. I certainly don't. Yeah. and the Israelis are doing it by themselves. Yeah. So as as a diaspora, we kind of need to hook into that a little bit and start yeah. to you know. We get need the to be normal. On. Yeah. We need, to, we need to understand that first and foremost, before we are academic, before we are intellectual, we must be normal. You must show me that 
you too enjoy a good, I don't know, white wine at the end of the day, you know? Bite of hummus. Yeah, or or not, whatever. <laughs> um, but, like, we're human beings, first and foremost, okay? And I know I keep saying this, but I want to reiterate this point, because in the political conversation, in the political discourse, this point gets lost. It's just like, this fact versus that alternative fact. And, you know, it's like, no, like... We're human beings, and we need to relate to each other on that level first if we want to get into the deeper conversations. My, my sense is is that there's a, a strong core of students, young people, millennials, whatever, who care very deeply about the politics and mm-hmm. can write an essay. But my sense is that most people just don't, and yeah. or at least don't care about uh, you know the deep politics. They do want to hear about the culture and the music, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be in a superficial way yeah. because it's a way of – talking about the society because that's what the society is right as much as it is all these other issues that we debate on the political sphere and 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 we should be introducing people to that because it is a way and because it deals with people's interests i mean from the state's perspective it's maybe not such a big deal but in south africa we really do stress the impact a relationship and a proper real relationship with israel can make to africa from an mm-hmm. agriculture and a water and these these are the issues that are animating people right. not you know, the the international law situation right. in, in, in Judea and Samaria, the West right. Bank. This is a great aha moment that I came to when I did a research project at the journal about, you know, how to reach millennials. It's just like, how do you use Israel as a vehicle to bring personal value to the lives of the people you're trying to engage? Because that we're, we're value oriented. You know, we are human beings. That's we're self-interested. Right. So that's really how you're going to how you're going to reach them. And I totally agree. You know, we have a we have a film coming out about the, the water revolution that Israel is bringing to the rest of the world, both in California and here in Africa. And it matters. And it's important. And it also, the byproduct is that, you know, please explain to me how Israel is, is, is all of these things that you say it is. And simultaneously having an interest in bringing water technology to Africa. Like, these things are inconsistent. They don't make sense. Either you hate people or you love people. And your actions are proof of, you know, which, which is really your impulse. So I think that the more we, we as you said, take it to, toward that toward that direction, I think the more impact we will have because we're listening to the interests that people have and we're being genuine as opposed to, you know, let me protest on your behalf so that you can protest on my behalf later. No, in a serious way. Like, what do you need that would better your life? Mm-hmm. And how can we be a part of that conversation? Now, bringing it back to, to the actual Jewish students themselves, I mean, there's mm-hmm. like a perennial Jewish thing about like young people, right? <laughs> are they are they still getting involved? Are they interested? And the particularly in the American community, mm-hmm. uh, sort of worries you get reports from time to time about, oh, you know, the young people are not interested. What's your, what's your perspective? I mean, do, do millennials care about Israel? Is it an issue? Where do we need to work harder, not work harder? Can we sit back and relax? It's all fine. I think Jewish millennials certainly care more because they're Jewish and they have this, you know, they've been t- told about Israel on some level. Um, but millennials in general don't care about Israel. I'm mm-hmm. not talking about the 10% or the 20% of the anti or the pro. The majority of people don't care about Israel. And this goes back to the whole, how can we bring personal value to your life so that you will care? Or, or so that Israel becomes normalized in the minds of the masses. Um, so most people are indi- most young people are indifferent. Most people are apathetic, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because indifference is not good. <laughs> it's a good thing because it's a neutral zone with which to work. And it's a neutral zone 
with which is it, it is easier to perhaps to fight against preconceived biases um, and also to introduce that value-oriented aspect of Israel content so that, you know, we just did a 24-hour epic adventure in Israel video and people from all walks of life watch that because it looked like this cool, just like HGTV, like mini documentary. We're just going to a country and we're engaging with the place and the people and the activities and it's just awesome and we're just being. And people appreciate that, even if they are indifferent, because that's cool. And people want to be cool. So if people perceive Israel as cool, they'll want to associate with her. You're listening to 101.9 chaifem.com. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review and we are talking to a very cool Chloe Feldari today on the show about African Americans and Israel and everything in between. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Now, Chloe, I want to talk a little bit more about your trip to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, you know, we used to be famous for exporting gold in South mm-hmm. Africa. But uh, unfortunately, I feel like we have started in the last few years to be exporting the idea of apartheid in a way which is not really appropriate. Uh, you've run into it almost immediately being yes. an African-American in South Africa. Talk to us a little bit about running into the analogy uh, arriving in the country. So, yeah, I came in on Friday and um, last Friday it went to immediately to Wits University, which had, was sort of at the tail end of its infamous Israel apartheid week. I spoke there on the last day. Awareness week, we don't call it. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Hebrew Liberation Week. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I, I spoke there, you know, and actually, you know, it was, it was mild compared to some of the videos that I've seen of people acting insane and making Heil Hitler salutes. Um, I do think it's, you know, it's unfortunate that that a country with with the legacy of apartheid um, would be would be would have that history exploited and trivialized by individuals um, in trying to create an association with Israel and apartheid. Um, I went to the apartheid museum two days ago, and I think that. You know, it was so interesting standing in front of the whites versus non-whites entry sign. It was it sort of became very palpable the meaning of apartheid to me as a Black American even in that moment, and um, it's it's incredibly ironic that in a country where people of color faced similar systems of oppression in comparison to Jews that they would that there would then be this campaign against Jewish identity that would associate it with its its historical oppressors. Um, But I do think there's great hope here in South Africa because of that shared history of experience and because of what Israel and South Africa can do to work together. I don't know if that'll happen in the next few years in terms of like a diplomatic bridge being built. Um, But I hope it will be. But I, I think also it's important from the perspective from the perspective of of the Jewish community uh, as well, um, to understand, and I say this from the perspective of the American Jewish community, apartheid was a very specific system of segregation and oppression based on race and skin color. Very not academic, they claim. No, I say this for for a reason. Um, There are many, many countries with oppressive governments, whether you're talking about Iran or Saudi Arabia um, or you know, other places as well, North Korea. But that's not apartheid. Apartheid is very specific to a very specific country with a very specific history. And to try and compare and contrast is to belittle and trivialize that history. Um, and I think it's paramount that people understand that. Um, and moreover, 
And please forgive me for being intellectual for a second. Moreover, it is intellectually lazy to compare the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to apartheid South Africa. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is complex and nuanced and and takes actually a great deal of, of, of learning to really f- get a full grasp of it and is in no way, shape, or form comparable to apartheid South Africa. Well, what, what's remarkable for me, I, I think one of the ambassadors made this point, mm-hmm. is, is, that, is that South Africa was about race, right? Black versus white, mm-hmm. Indian. Uh, we also have a term here, colored, which I won't go into. But... Mm-hmm. The Israeli-Palestinian and wider Arab and wider Jewish-Muslim conference a conflict is about everything from ethnicity to religion right. to everything except race, right. basically. <laughs> it has nothing to do with skin color. Right. Literally nothing to do with skin color. Um, so it, it's it's laziness. It's just like, does any is anyone capable of engaging or or interested in engaging in sophisticated thought? Or are we going to collapse everything by comparing apples to oranges? It's just it's laziness. Now, do you think that the American Jewish community takes the danger of this analogy seriously? Because I, I saw like a big anti-BDS conference coming up. Yeah, uh, speaking in, of in that. The, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. At the uh, UN. <laughs> you, at the UN. Yeah. There's not a single South African speaking on that list. But if you look at the other side, yeah. they're repeating a very specific mantra. So, yeah. so clearly they see something valuable for their perspective in comparing Israel right. to apartheid. But the the people who are driving the conversation from our side don't seem to be taking serious cognizance of where that takes us. Well, in order to speak, in order to speak about the American Jewish perspective, <laughs> might be a different answer if I, than if I were referring to the South African perspective. But in my mind, I mean, the American Jewish community, to, to a certain extent, takes BDS a little bit too seriously. <laughs> and I'm serious in, right. to the, in the sense that like BDS has just become this obsession almost that is the source of all meaning and, and is a mobilization factor in the American... Fundraising factor. Yeah, fundraising factor in the American Jewish community. And there's a great quote by um, uh, Zohar Raviv, the vice president of birthright, of education at Birthright. He says, the Jewish... Diet cannot be sustained if it is constantly fed, um, or excuse me, the Jewish body cannot be sustained if it is constantly fed a diet of tragedies. Mm-hmm. And so, my whole philosophy is: yes, raise awareness about BDS when the time comes and if, when it is a problem. But throughout the year, you should be promoting Israel content that's engaging, that's dynamic, that's cool, etc. So that over time, it's not that BDS goes away, it's that BDS becomes irrelevant right. because Israel is all the more relevant and everything that Israel has to offer is all the more relevant. So that is the piece of advice that I would give to the American Jewish community, which is, um, you know, as I stated earlier, taking it a little bit too seriously. Um, I don't know if, I think it's a different issue, especially here in South Africa, because this is where apartheid occurred and it's easy to, to you know, it, it's a hotbed issue. It's it's more militant, as I understand it, and and what, from what I've seen on college campuses, it's not that militant in America. I mean, there's Israel Apartheid Week, but it's not, you don't have people for the most part heiling Hitler. Right. Okay. You don't. You don't, You generally don't have that. Okay. You have people getting into disagreements. You don't have generally. You don't have people physically attacking other people. Okay. It's a whole other situation <laughs> here in South Africa, and in order to address it, it requires. That I become more aware of the dynamics, really, 
that are happening on the ground. And I'll, I'll be having an interesting conversation, I think, with a lot of black South Africans tomorrow um, about this issue, some of whom were formerly BDSers and are dealing with trying to answer the question of, you know, how do I deal with this intersection of anti-Israel people being rep- allegedly pro-black, but then, you know, being anti-Israel. So, Okay. Now, as an American, mm-hmm. uh, you now get, uh, for the next four years, uh, perhaps mm. even eight. Do I have uh, to talk about that? <laughs> I work for a nonprofit. I just right, you work for a nonprofit. Out. You have no political affiliation. No, no, that's okay. uh, what do you think the effect of Trump <laughs> is going to be? the question anyway. <laughs> Listen, you don't get a free ride on on, on this podcast, right? Um, just in America in general. Of, on what? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> you want me to sum that up in two minutes? Yeah, well, sure. Why not? Oh boy. Because it does feel like Trump has mobilized two quite dangerous factions in American life. The one mm-hmm. is the extreme progressives, mm-hmm. the kind of people we see at the Women's March. Yeah. But on the other side, we've got the, 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 the alt-right, right? Which, so, which comes, which, which the horseshoe theory, you know, yeah. come to agree on certain issues eventually. Yes. Um, ironically enough. Listen, I, dis- notwithstanding policy, policy, okay? I think that what's going on with regard to the rhetoric that is otherizing people, whether it's coming from the left or it's coming from the right, is dangerous in the country and dangerous for the country's future. Um, And I think that the more we see groups like the Women's March or people on the alt-right take advantage of this language and use it um, to mobilize people, I think it's going to be very dangerous because um, the American system works. because we're able to, even while disagreeing, sit across from each other and see each other's humanity. And if that is disappearing within American culture, we're going to have a problem, and it's going to be a problem that will go on to affect um, international issues, including this conversation about Israel. Um, But this is actually related to, to the Israel conversation in the sense that on many college campuses in America, there's this elite way of thinking that associates, the, quote unquote, the white person with everything that is other, that is evil, that is monster, that is etc. And the person of color with everything that is virtuous and good and noble and just, etc. Um, which is actually a form of racism, but I won't get into that. Um, it, this is dangerous. Because then people say, oh, well, Israel looks white, and so therefore I assume that it is this, that, and the other. And it flows, a colonial it apartheid. Right. right. Such a such a easy, stupid <laughs> model of thinking um, that collapses complex issues into if 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 this is X. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. You know, that sort right. of thing. Um, and we're seeing that sort of same rhetoric in the country with regard to politically divisive issues. Well, for me, that was... That, that Trevor Noah interview yeah. with Tony, Tony which was Rose. important, yeah. despite my feelings about both of those individuals, and right. I was I was on I was on Tommy's show uh, discussing Black Lives Matter, um, but that was important. That was important for uh, American political discourse, and it was important because even after that, he like sent her flowers, and she was on another person's show who also comes from a different political perspective, and it's important that whether they disagree or not. They'd be cordial, and if possible, they'd be friends. Right. It is so important and so crucial that that happen. Because, again, it's almost like it's not a messaging issue. It's like somewhere in this conversation, in the American conversation, in the South African conversation, don't even get me started, but that that there 
it's it's that people are not talking to one another people anymore. People are not talking to each other. They're otherizing each other. They're they're doing what Martin Buber warned, famously warned against. He said human beings are not are not dots in the grid of time and space, right? They're reducing people to their skin color or they're reducing people to their political affinities or affiliations. When we are all human beings and we all suffer from fears and anxieties and and questions about the future and uncertainty, but we all have these grand hopes and dreams and we all want, you know, um, to build a future for ourselves and for our family. And if we can begin to have conversations with people we disagree with on that level, it'll be much more productive in the long run. Oh, and with that, we come to the end of this particular edition of the New Blue Review. Chloe, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for flying all the way to come talk to us. Thank you. And uh, if if you don't want to be a dot on, in cyberspace and not listening to uh, or engaging with us, please uh, don't be. Please uh, engage with us. You can get the new Blue Review on the Jerusalem Post. You can also engage with us on Twitter, on the, sta- on the, the radio station's handle, uh, 101.9 chaifem, chaifem.com. Uh, find me on Twitter, Benji underscore Shulman, and uh, on email, Benji at chai.co.za, and uh, ZA for the international uh, listeners out there. And we, we take all comments, criticisms, and uh, the occasional hate mail to stick up <laughs> on our board. That's all the time we have for today. We'll see you next week on the New Blue Review.